0: This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 40 years now. They're an activist, solutions-oriented publisher focused on bringing you tools for a world of change. They've now published over 600 books available both in print and ebooks as well as an increasing library of audiobook selection as well. They care deeply about both what they publish and how they do business, and so the same thinker and doer approach permeates their in-house work and the books themselves. A certified B Corporation, they print on 100% post-consumer recycled paper, and they are carbon neutral, and they print only in North America, never offshore. And that's just the company themselves. Most importantly, they've got the best selection of books that you need to build your own regenerative ecological or community-based projects. You can check out their full list of titles now at newsociety.com. Hey there everybody! Now before we get started on this week's episode, I want to give you a quick update after that three-part series on drought. Now some of you will remember that Nick and I started out by describing how the regions around both of our homes were experiencing and coping with the prolonged drought over this and last year. Well, in the last two days, here in the pre littoral mountains east of the Plana de Vic, where I live, in Catalonia in Spain, We received a major downpour, and it has continued to rain solidly the two days since then. Now, the Riera Major, the river that runs past my house, rose more than half a meter, which is almost two feet in height, as the water rushed down from the parched catchment area upstream. The waterfall turned into a cascade, and though the level has gone down by about half of its former height, it's still flowing much higher than it was before the rains and the water is a light brown opaque color that is heavy with the topsoil of runoff from upstream. Now one of the reasons why I mentioned this event is because one of the first reactions that came from the administrators of the neighborhood across the street from us is that people can now start filling their pools and watering their gardens again. It just strikes me how quickly we all revert back to old habits and water use patterns The moment that a temporary relief sets in. Now the larger situation is that despite nearly 60 centimeters or about two feet of rain that has fallen in the last two days, the total accumulated rainfall for this year is still less than half of what it would be at this time of the year on an average year, maybe only a decade ago. I want to stress the point that a couple of large and relieving rain events do not constitute the end of a drought. We haven't even started the most intense part of our dry season, and the level of our reservoirs remain at critical levels. Even if we somehow manage to get an overall average rain amount by the end of this year, that doesn't necessarily mean a replenishment of the reservoirs, the aquifers, and certainly not the snow cap in the Pyrenees that feeds the land below. I really believe that we need to prioritize a transformation of our relationship with water and the way that we use and manage it. This priority can't be lost in times of temporary abundance. These are the moments when we should use every drop to restore what was lost through previous mismanagement. But look, anyway, I'll get off my soapbox now because I'm very happy to bring you another episode in this nonlinear series on holistic health. In previous episodes, we talked about whole food nutrition with Richard Perkins and reaching your peak performance with Dr. Garrett Kefferstein. And today we're going to take a look at the role that our built environment can play in facilitating health and interconnection. So those of you who have been listening for a long time will probably remember that this topic is very close to my heart. I started out in natural building before ecological design, and I was fascinated by the potential of creating living spaces that could bring out the best in people, positively affect their health, and become a part of the surrounding ecology. Now in this session, I'm going to explore all of these angles and more with Neil Collins, the co-founder and CEO of Latitude, a company that helps homeowners, earth tenders, farmers, developers, and real estate professionals across North America who are called to transform the way that we inhabit the planet. Neil is also the host of the Regenerative Real Estate Podcast and has been recognized by the Daily Journal of Commerce as a rising phenom in the building industry. Neil lives where the mountains meet the sea on Whidbey Island, where he is creating a permaculture-based family compound and is a founding board member of a community housing land trust. Now in this session, we explore what regenerative real estate is and how it can overcome some of the inherent conflicts that are present in the dynamics of land ownership and land being traded as a commodity. From there, we explore how different land management and development models can create equitable and healthy living environments instead of being reduced to financial tools and means of merely housing populations, the way that it's mostly used now. We also look at the potential for housing to facilitate the creation of community and deeper connection, a concept that Neil is not only promoting, but is also living on his own property. This is a really fun conversation that takes many different turns, and I hope that you find the challenge and the experiment of creating regenerative buildings and land ownership models as interesting as Neil and I do. So let's just jump right in and I'll hand things over to Neil Collins. Neil, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show today. It's interesting to hear your voice directly instead of listening to it through your own show. It's always fun to to talk with people who have a similar perspective of being in the interview seat. But anyway, how are things going for you out on Whidbey Island?
1: Oliver, it is it is a real treat to be on the show. I it, It's almost... Uh one of those experiences where you know somebody's voice just from tuning into their podcast. And uh, I've been following following your journey for a while w- with the podcast, and you just have such an amazing guest lineup that it's um uh, it's fun to to actually get to talk in person or at least digitally, even though we're separated by an ocean. But yeah, life is good. It's it's May in the Pacific Northwest, which means that everybody and everything is coming out of hibernation and yeah. uh, myself included. And so it's, it's just, I don't know. It's like that spring yang fever is just alive and well. And it's like, I have this renewed sense of, of life right now. Um, yeah. Thanks for asking. How, how about yourself? I I'm curious because I don't get to talk to too many people in that Mediterranean climate. Um, do you even have seasons?
0: Oh, yeah, we <laughs> or is all do. time great? Yeah, well, so, you know, it's it's difficult to describe because when I talk about the Mediterranean climate, most people will have a different idea than what we actually experience here. They'll think of olive groves and orchards and, you know, vineyards and such, which they do have at a lower elevation than what we are. But we're 500 meters up. So that's like, um, what is that, three times? So about 1,500 feet in elevation in a small mountain range in between the Pyrenees and the coastal range here in the far northeast of Spain, in in Catalonia. And because of that, we are in a very cold pocket. So we technically have a Mediterranean climate with the change of precipitation patterns. We have kind of cool, humid winters and our rainy seasons are in autumn and spring. And then we get very dry and fairly harsh summers, which have been getting harsher over the years. we are cold enough that we don't really have that uh, olive grove and and vineyard culture around here and it's super steep so what we see around here instead is very dense forest we're on the edge of two natural parks in the area and this area specifically is known for chestnuts Uh, so it actually looks probably more like a temperate forest that you would think of in other places than the more quintessential mediterranean And because this year has been a real drought year, a lot of what is around us is quite dry and a bit brittle. We've just started to get our rains back. But we've got a beautiful river that runs right through the front of the property because this used to be an old mill. And so our area, our little microclimate here is extremely lush right now. And spring has been popping for a while. But I mean, I'm also remembering back to the beautiful Pacific Northwest Springs when I used to live in Portland and Seattle when I was going to maritime school there part of me misses that as well
1: yeah yeah it's it's a special time of the year and so um, we we try to take advantage of it and it's it is it's hibernation Uh, but more and more this is our first year getting to spend the entire entire year on the island rooted in place and not leaving and there's cold rainy winter months around January February and it was a real uh a test in one way but also just like an, an understanding um, of that seasonal rhythmic flow of of how things come together and it was a great experience to get to know a new property that we purchased last year uh, and get to know it intimately and and that I I think, I'll cherish for a long time, uh, even though probably next February we will be getting some sunshine.
0: <laughs> I connect so much with what you just said there because, like we were talking about before, I just recently moved into this place less than a year ago, and I'm starting to really put down roots in a community that I haven't done since I lived in in Guatemala, and you know it's a different set of perspectives and and priorities. When you start to cut off some of the other options that are constantly coming through, I can only imagine you get invitations and opportunities to travel all the time. But making a decision to put your time and your efforts into a place and go deeper rather than to spread out broadly is, I don't know, maybe the same for you, but it's really shifting the way that I look at the months and the years to come and start adopting a mindset of being a host rather than constantly being a guest. Is that something that you've also experienced so far?
1: I think for me uh, I'd like to look at it from this nested systems perspective that like we have we have these 5 acres and there's a home on it and we're we're bringing in tiny homes and it's it's amazing and like we could really say this is our kingdom right here but mm. it's also nested within this island community that in the summertime there's a lot of tourists and our friends want to come and we just we were able to host a, a dear friend from Portland this past weekend that was great to see, but it's also, you know, how, how are we integrating into the community? And and at the same time, it's a whole new bioregion that we're we're not used to the Puget Sound. So it's it's getting used to that and understanding uh, you know, what, what's really going on? We're between these massive mountain ranges. Now we're quite coastal. So it's not just, you know, what's going on in the five acres or what's going on kind of climactically, but it's also understanding who, who are the organizations and who are the people out there and how do we really integrate in and create community. And that is, I think, equally important as how do we revitalize our soil and, um, and do like the fun projects that we really want to be doing so that we can be integral in the community and like really understand what the community's needs are and uh, figure out how to fit in.
0: And what you just described right there is exactly why I'm so excited for this conversation today. These are some of the, the questions that I'm struggling with myself. And I don't have a whole lot of experience answering them or exploring them other than sometimes from a distance through other clients' projects. And now I'm actually doing it myself. It's a part of my daily life. And I'm in a very foreign culture as well, which adds a dynamic to it, as well as like what you are talking about, getting to know a new bioregion, the plant communities, the ecology of where you are. It's a very steep learning curve. And I am so curious to hear how it is you're going through this, whether you have a system and a particular approach or whether you're kind of making it up as you go and accepting feedback. I'm sure it's probably a combination of all of those. But before we dive really deep into those questions, why don't we start with a little background? Because you did not start out in home and placemaking, real estate or any of this. Tell me about your journey to get to this point.
1: Yeah, that <laughs> I think this is what, what I'm always attracted to with people's stories is, is like, what is that evolution and the becoming? Uh, because we look at, I mean, even people on this podcast, you're like, how on earth did you go... Like how did you become this like world renowned expert on this subject? and And for me, I grew up in a place in southern Louisiana that was uh, climate insecure, cancer alley. We're losing marshes, going through Hurricane Katrina and tons of other hurricanes and and just kind of realizing that, you know, is this is this where I want to be? Um, I, I have a deep affinity for the beauty of my homeland, but I'm also, I like the prospects of working in oil and gas just wasn't, wasn't in the cards for me. And so I, I hit the road, uh, after university and, and joined the Peace Corps and really fell in love with community building and community development internationally and really saw a career, you know, maybe working with the UN or, um an international aid organization. And so there's a lot of learning there, but that that ultimately took me to South Asia with my partner where we were doing climate change adaptation projects with um uh, the um uh, sign like playing the interplay between scientists and policymakers and being able to translate you know, science into how do we communicate this to not just the government policymakers, but also to other stakeholders. And I love that work. It was marine marine protection and sustainability and community development. Uh, but ultimately, it was a nonprofit based job, and we we're trying to figure out how to make ends meet. And you know, really, what the direction of our careers were going to be. And over time, we just realized that. The conversations that we are sitting in with making, you know, national policy, it was really getting made with tourism drivers, developers from this very interesting real estate perspective. And so we thought, you know, that's a really interesting arena to be playing in. There's a lot of money there, um, but there's also a lot of power. And so how do you start to shift that? And so we we dove headfirst into the real estate industry in Portland in 2013, 2014. Uh, Portland, Oregon was going through a lot of different changes. The show Portlandia was certainly changing the the community gentrification was going on. A lot of California was moving up. Like it was it was a small town looking to be a city.
0: And that's so and, wild because that's exactly around the time when I was living there. I can think. No, back. I'm surprised we didn't we didn't cross over.
1: Well, I mean, we we learned real estate from a very conventional approach. It, it was from um, small multifamily apartment buildings, uh, learning how to improve them, working with these landlords that wanted to to sell after you know maybe decades of ownership and tons of deferred maintenance, and um, working in the vein of property management and in brokerage and large commercial development. So it was, it was really this intense period where it was like, how, how does this industry come together? Like, how do you acquire property and how do you, where, where are the financing sources and where does the capital and how does investment work? Like what, what attracts people to invest into a project? Um, and then once you do that, how do you bring the people and the teams together to pull it off and, once you've built something, how do you manage it? So it was, it was a really intense period. Uh, we put our heads down and just started to kind of say yes to all the opportunities that were coming our way quite unconsciously following the dogma of like the entrepreneurial spirit of just like, you've got to grow and you've got to scale and you've got to replace yourself with other people. And, and that's how you do it. Um, but it got to a point to where we realized there's, you know, 20 something people on the team. Uh, we're not talking about the values that really lit us up around community development or sustainability. Um, there, you know, I had this like deep love for permaculture and agriculture uh, from my days in, in the Peace Corps that was not getting represented. Um, and it coincided with the time that my Dad got what we thought was terminal cancer diagnosis at the time. My mother-in-law got a terminal cancer diagnosis. She ultimately died a couple of years later. Uh, My father-in-law's partner came down with ALS. He had also gone through cancer. So it's just like, what on earth is going on? Like we've built this thing that we ultimately can't stand. um, And our family life is a real wake-up call in that was the catalyst for us to say, let's take a breath let's figure out what's actually going on right now like why why are elders getting sick whenever they're in their 60s and they're healthy or we thought that they were healthy and let's take a pause on what we're doing with our company because we're we can't do this for the next 10 years and so that was a really amazing generative time to explore you know what, how the gut biome is related to the soil biome and what, what we're doing to, to kind of rape and pillage our forest in the name of of materials to build with. And uh, we got into building biology and learned about uh, sick buildings and the difference with healthy buildings. And we're hearing from, from doctors that are talking about, you know, you can have the best cancer treatment in the world, but if you do it in isolation, you'd be better off eating Big Macs and sitting in community Um, and so that was, that was really our our wake up call is 2019 to say, we've got to do some radical shifts. And I don't want to leave the industry that I feel that there's this latent potential there, because at the end of the day, what we came to realize is how do we steward places? Like our, our job is to help transfer land and home and property. Um, but there's got to, no one else is really talking about like how do we how do we see maybe a home as an acupuncture point that can help to not only enliven somebody's dream of this is my my dream homestead but how then can it help to transform a community or the larger system and so i was listening to you know the leaders within the ecological movement around life-giving principles and how do we start to adapt them into our work? And so that's really what, what sent us down this catapult of, of what we're calling regenerative real estate right now.
0: Well, let's go into that definition then. What does
1: How could you have regeneration, which for me is, is so soulful. It is uh, it's first an inner practice and then it's expressed outwardly through my decision-making on how, I interact with land and community and people in place. Uh, but then we have real estate, which is the commodification of land uh, ultimately. But the more and more that we have like really deepened into this practice, we realize that one, we're not going to be like moving out of private ownership anytime soon. Now there's, there's like some great arcs into more community ownership models that we're a part of that are really uh, hopeful for me, but it's it's really figuring out how, how do we bring those people together that are trying to figure out, like, this is how I want to live. This is how I want to show up. This is how I want to activate place and how I want to be a steward. But how do I do that? So it's bringing in our expertise around financing and bringing uh, teams together and figuring out that this is a community development approach ultimately and realizing that it's not prescriptive. Um, Like if you're working with a, a person and they're like, I want a regenerative home. Well, we have a lot of things to go over. One, a building isn't regenerative, right? Like there's a regenerative design movement that talks about capturing more water than, than you can use or harnessing enough energy than, more than what you're consuming, and those are all amazing things. Like I love that technology that comes together, um, but ultimately it's it's centered around five pillars for us, which is how do we have homes and habitats that represent health and wellness, ecology, community, sustainability, and in a spirit of place. And if we can really orient towards that framework, we can go miles deep under each one of those and we can really start to work with people around like what where do you want to go what's the direction that that you're really lit up about you know some people they come to us and they're like i want a net zero house i want this like modern glass like I, i and i want passive house design it's like okay we're gonna go in that direction but we're gonna start to layer in some different things to to really think about this uh where other people they're like i want a homestead i want to be off grid i want to be self-sufficient um and then and we can work with them on that and figure out where how that comes together uh and what i love is like i love the crossover between all those and to see how it's getting expressed that like Five years ago, people thought the pinnacle of of living was this like self-reliance in a food forest with no other neighbors around. And now people are like, I want to have community and I I want the same things, but like they're starting to think deeper about some of these issues. Um, and so that's, we're bringing in this like the buy-sell realm, but we, we work really hard on what does the transformation look like and how do we bring... Uh, this ecological world with this real estate world together. And um, a lot of it's been thrown spaghetti at the wall, but there's been some amazing people and projects that have come out of it as a result.
0: Man, you really outlined so many of the things, just thinking back to how I originally fell in love with this idea of all the potential that's within the concept, the Amalgus concept of regeneration and my entry point being into natural building originally. That was a big point of focus. That was what I was doing with clients and how that has blossomed into working in broader ecologies. But so many of the things you articulated were the points of inspiration that got me to dig deeper into this. And there's also a lot of things that you mentioned there at the beginning, too, that I'd like to dive deeper into. One, particularly in that we're not likely to move away from private ownership of land anytime soon. And that it is almost a cognitive dissonance of bringing in the concept of regenerative real estate when the definition of real estate is the commodification of what should be a public resource to begin with. And in understanding those contrary pulls, how can you start to set the groundwork for the cultural shift that could maybe make it realistic to move away from private ownership i would imagine you've thought through this quite a bit more than than i have in what are the precursors or the presence of elements that could start to create a new relationship and remove private ownership from land maybe go through what you've kind of discovered in operating in that space And what might be some of the things that we can start to lay the groundwork for now if that's eventually where we'd like to go?
1: Yeah, so I'm going to come at this from a very US-centric perspective. Arguably, the US has uh, the most assets within the real estate industry than any other country with China either close behind if maybe they've, they've surpassed the US. But our system is based on private ownership, where it's, it's very particular because you can go out and there's a whole other industry, which is the financial industry that lends money for you to go buy property. So it's, it's unlike stocks where if you're going to buy a hundred thousand dollars of stocks or a hundred dollars of stocks, you need that amount of money, real estate, you're able to leverage that. Um, so you've got to realize whenever people are talking about, well, we shouldn't have, have private ownership, uh, in, in theory, that's, I, I like really lean in that direction, but we also have to overcome, there's $32 trillion worth of assets in this one country alone, that if you were to, to publicly, or to get away from privatization of land, uh, it would immediately accla- collapse the economy, and it, it's really hard for people to understand that uh, from a policymaking perspective. And we've grown up in this environment where people think that their home is their largest investment. And largely, it's been that way because somebody has bought it for, let's say, $30,000 back in 1950, and now it's worth $350,000. Uh, in coastal regions, it's even more. You bought it uh, maybe even 10 years ago, and, and now you're you've doubled your money. Um, that has certainly created wealth generation for gener- a lot of generations and a lot of people, but it's also excluded a lot of people, particularly those that are structurally disadvantaged, uh, especially you know, like the BIPOC community. And my entry point into really understanding I what I consider to be a beautiful precipice in time comes with a lot of constraints and hardship is that Uh, equity, access, and affordability is now forefront on almost every community across the country, that it doesn't matter if you're in the Midwest, or if you are in San Francisco, you, these are conversations that are taking place. And I don't think that there is one necessary route, but I'm so encouraged by the fact that uh, more and more, we're starting to see people that are embracing uh, a cooperative structure, those have been limited towards the Northeast and New York of like, how do you actually have community ownership over assets? Uh, we're starting to see more and more community land trusts that are coming about, which is essentially saying, you know, we're going to remove the t- this land or this home from the speculative private market, and we're going to create a permanently affordable home out of it. And I think that we've got a lot to go, like in Washington state, less than 0.5% of, so less than half of a percent are, is permanently affordable homes. Um, And I even think that we have a lot of opportunity whenever we are selling our private homes or property that can we use some of those equity proceeds to go towards homeownership programs or community ownership, um, through deed restrictions and, and things like that. Um, so I think that there's there's a lot of people working on this and it shows up in very different ways, like, like from Web3 and blockchain and what's going on with decentralized finance. That's not a, a sturdy stone for me to really step on, but I'm, in, I'm like cautiously uh, optimistic and watching some of the concepts that are going on there as well as being like, totally skeptical because let's just face it, like it's not to protect an artist and small business owners. It is like, it's a way that people are seeing, we can make money out of this. Uh, But it's interesting how, how that is kind of percolating to the top to crowdfunding and like really helping to channel capital into more purpose-driven projects where you're not beholden to high net worth individuals or institutional money um so right now it just feels like there is so many different things that are happening to you know this push to to want to live in community but also realizing that we're not We're not exposed to how to live in community like we've been living in these like really isolated lives. That's been largely dominant because of this single use zoning that we know where it's here's your plot. You can have a house uh, or even if you're in a rural area, you need a minimum of 20 to 100 acres and one house per per uh, parcel. So we know this existence, but the culture right now seems to be really pushing. And it's like a braided river in my mind of just like finding ways in which to to move forward.
0: And how involved are you in the design and the creation of these real estate assets? Are you actually going in there with architects and kind of co-creating these with the people who are either commissioning or renovating them? Or is this not the realm in which you're, you're working actively? Uh,
1: yeah, that's a great question because I kind of realized early on, what, what do I bring to the table? Like I, I bring to the table structure, finance, management, uh, team building, and realizing that because there's so many different avenues that people can take whenever they want to put together um, a large project maybe they want to do a retreat center that like you need other people as part of that or even if we're talking somebody wants to move in into a new home and they want to transform the landscape They're, they want to get rid of the grass they want to bring in um, i don't know pollinator habitat they want healthy materials in, in their indoor environment you know so more natural light more biophilic design they want to get rid of that oil furnace and bring in like a heat pump and some insulation. Like, no one has every single skill set that you're possibly going to need. And so, one of the big shifts for us was to realize that we are connectors in this industry. Our job is to go find the people in the locations that we're working with that are the designers, the architects, the contractors, the financiers. Um, community development corporations like there's so many different avenues that it takes to build a team that can adapt to clients individual needs and and goals and so that's what we do is we just we bring together a large ecosystem of businesses and organizations that are value aligned that understand what we're what regeneration is trying to do and then we just connect them and and we're the hub. Um, and I think that's, that's fun because it's, it's a model based upon collaboration rather than on competition. And I don't, I have no desire to like own the category. I just want, I want to be in community and I want to, I want to be over here with my expertise and to be able to call in mentors and other industry leaders that are just, they've been doing incredible work. And it's, it's a pleasure to be able to, to work with our clients, with these people and, and really create magic.
0: So that's a really good overview of the concept and how this works. Can you give me an example, perhaps from a recent project or one that stands out in your mind of how this has actually played out?
1: Yeah, I right now we have a project that 10 years ago, I, I would have thought that would be impossible to be working on projects like this. Like I got called in uh, from a guy that who was a a developer, uh, not like kind of a suburban developer, and he had a bit of a an eco awakening a couple of years ago, and through Wendell Berry and like really finding some of these like uh, eco spirituality books, and he got into regenerative agriculture and like went down that rabbit hole, which is you know it's a bottomless hole. You can just keep going and keep going and keep going, and so. He went from, huh, I'm a housing developer to there's something to this agriculture piece that's really lighting me up. And he started to pick up on on a lot of our stuff where I've just become really fascinated with how do we have an integrative approach with housing and farms and not this like farm style amenity where you can drape this brand of, of farm amenity over what's really luxury real estate that only a small percentage of the people can afford. Uh, And there's this othering where the farm is over there. It's not really activated and you have the housing over here. Um, I started to to realize like there's people out there like farmer D out of Atlanta, Georgia that are uh, they're taking the concepts of clustered sustainable housing and and uh, community design and integrating working farms based on regenerative agriculture throughout them, and so this guy is like, "Look, I want to do an agrihood in this this community. That the community is extremely food insecure. It's got no farms. During COVID, the grocery store almost shut down, um, and we're desperate for housing. We have no workforce housing. We have no rentals." And everything that is there is just really expensive. So how do we actually bring that together? And so that, that's that been a recent project where it's, how do we establish the agrihood in this one particular place in Washington State? And it's bringing together those people, and it's figuring out the design challenges of where the contractors in small communities. Um, so how, how do you not just design, but how do you construct? Um, what are the particular site needs that, that you need of like you can't just have a ring of houses around a farm like what what are the farms needs so so many people i see trading these memes of like wouldn't it be great if we just had a bunch of friends get together and like buy land and were we able to create a village out of it underneath that it takes an incredible amount of planning from where's the land how do you buy it how do you pull the design team together? How do you finance the construction? How do you actually do it? What's you know, and that's just one element. Much less, how do we how do we create an integrative team so that they understand that if you put the farm first and the housing second. The housing actually creates a lot of opportunity for the farm where you can start to capture rainwater. You can start to close the loop on nutrient cycles and like really break the conception of what we know. of Like nutrients come in our front door. And when we're talking human habitat in the form of grocery bags or produce from your garden, and then they typically leave out the sewer pipe and they need to be removed off site as fast as possible to a place that we don't really know where they go. And once you start to look at the research, so much energy is going into wastewater treatment. It's unbelievable. And that either causes environmental degradation at the, at the site or it's like stuff is getting pushed out into estuaries and riparian habitats, or it's going into septic systems. And that's also not really good because it's going into the groundwater. Um, so we have this whole opportunity right now, as we're thinking about homes and habitats, of how do we think deeper into that circularity of design? Um, and how do we start to think deeper on if money if it takes a lot of money to to build a house or to build a a neighborhood or a community, who's benefiting from that? And this is where. I was saying it's an inflection point that it it's almost like the Occupy Wall Street movement has gone underground, but it's, it's showing up in that. How does it not just go to the hedge funds anymore? Um, how do we bring in main street and mom and pop and people that want impact within their own 401ks or whatever it is like now is the time that we can really start to just deepen All these areas to create truly life-giving habitats that, you know, if you you start to read more indigenous authors, they're saying, look, we are a keystone species. We create life-giving habitats, not just for ourselves, but for all other species. And so um, that's, this is the playground that I get to play in. It's like real estate meets ecology and it's, it's amazing.
0: (laughs) It's endlessly inspiring. Well, you know, like you mentioned, real estate has become almost even more than housing or accommodation, a financial investment tool, which is part of the reason why it is so disconnected from the needs, both of the communities around, as well as the individuals who occupy, let's say, spec housing or condos, you know, that are meant to perhaps solve a singular problem of a need for housing, but not the community needs, the connection with the natural world or any of the other desires that are basically not considered when these development projects are, are put in. How do you see the real estate industry playing a role in making these other necessities a uh, factor in the design and the investment of this? And can, well, without giving you too much to try and answer here, I'm also curious if the investment aspect of real estate can somehow be sort of Aikido warped into something that propels the health and the capacity for life rather than just a sequestration of financial resources back up to the top.
1: Yeah, um, this is an interesting question. There... Whenever I I was first having to work with a property owner that had put a lot of love and care and energy and, and money into taking a 1924 bungalow that was energy efficient, it had extreme deferred maintenance, it's falling in on itself. And over four years, he turned it into truly an incredible high performance home that had uh, through largely his own efforts and his his sweat labor going into it uh, to where it it had the dense packed cellulose that it, it was climate controlled it had healthy materials it was um, it was a human skilled home he brought in uh, lots of pollinator and drought friendly uh, plants for for landscaping and this is a dense Portland property. And whenever he needed to go buy another house and, and move for his family needs because the family is growing, and this house wasn't wasn't going to be um, an adequate size for adding a new child into the family, the the interesting thing is is we're still stuck in this. How do you value real estate? And, and an appraiser came by and said, okay, you know, based upon the other 1920 bungalows in this area here's the value of the property. And he would have been losing a lot of money and a lot of uh, all that energy that that went into the place. And I had to push back saying, you know, how can you compare apples to oranges like this? I mean, this guy's life investment, uh, all, all his money got put into his home and creating this. And the appraiser said, you know, there's just, there's not the demand out there. There's an, and how do you how do you value ecological landscaping ecologically resilient landscaping let me say and and so we realized you know it's it's not that there's no demand the demand is actually pretty high there's no supply <laughs> like if you go into an urban environment it the supply of of homes that are equipped for the 21st and the 22nd century is just not there We have largely inherited a built environment that's based upon 19th and 20th century thinking and technology from the plants that are on site to the design, to the zoning and to the technology that that's in there. So we really have to figure out how do we, how do we do this? How do we make this transition? Um, And it comes from the people that are saying, this is how I want to show up. This is how I want to live. This is what a healthy, resilient home and community looks like for me. This is how I want to be a part of my neighborhood and my community. Or this is how I want to get away from a corporate life and and actually be more place-based. And it takes everybody right now doing what everybody is doing to follow their values and their curiosity and that that inside voice that's saying you know i can i can do more i can there's different ways in which we can do this and it's linking up with those professionals and those organizations or even your neighbors to say what if we were to try this and you start to see research that is like if you transform your landscape on your property and you live in a dense urban block, uh, this, there are researchers that have shown how many people start to uh, mimic or do similar projects. And, and that's so encouraging to see. If, like, it, it just takes one person on a block to, to create a spark that other people will pick up on. And you might look really crazy with, you know, your leaf mold in the front yard, and like you're not mowing in in May, and you know your your sheet mulching. You got you've got leaves and mulch, and we had a perpetual uh, chip pile on the street in our front yard that people would come and knock on the door saying like, "You have a smoking pile of." Uh, Uh, wood debris in the yard or on the street like you should really call the fire department Um, so that i think that's what it requires it requires the culture to embrace the fact that how we have been living is entirely unsustainable it's not healthy we see that in so many different ways the symptoms are there right from exploding cancer rates autoimmune diseases sickle cell anemia ADHD, uh, all of it. Like the food that we're eating is linked to how we're stewarding our land. The zoning that we have is linked to how we are stewarding our land. The design that we're in is like perpetuated by the architecture schools and design schools. So, like, th- this is what's so fun about regeneration is it's not just this one application of how do we create polycultural perennial landscapes that sequester carbon it is about how do we infuse regenerative thinking into every single industry that exists and then we'll be living in a very different different place
0: Hmm. yeah and it it comes back to one of the early realizations that i had when i was in natural building this concept that you know you can bring together all these sort of natural materials minimally processed some of the newer ones coming out like hempcrete or whatever to try and calculate which one has the lowest embodied energy or lowest carbon footprint whatever metric you're trying to optimize for and what they always came up with was the lowest embodied energy or carbon footprint for any material is the one that's already standing it's not in any new development and though i'm sure that's a big part of what you work with there's also this challenge like you were just talking about of renovating these neighborhoods, these buildings, this infrastructure that was not built with the type of lifestyle or the health that we would want in mind. In fact, especially thinking of the U.S. context, like that is the vast majority of what our built environment is. And yet, if we ignore even these broken, unhealthy, engineered environments, we're missing some of the biggest potential and the best use of resources that that we have access to without this very attractive but very privileged perspective of let's just forget about all this and start over from scratch because we have the resources and the flexibility to do so. It really negates the reality of most people's situation and the options and the resources that they're working with. And so like, where do you see some of the biggest potential in, you know, sometimes overcoming the regulations or the restrictions that are in place for these unhealthy built environments to start to find a new potential and a trajectory that can eventually um, start to fulfill some of the things that we're optimizing for in the new buildings or, you know, the, the conceived structures and, and real estate projects that you probably work with as well.
1: Yeah, I love that you... You are coming from a natural building background, because it's hard to to not see so much potential there, um, from the embodied carbon to the non toxic environments. Like if, if people really tune in and they start to to really look at the public health crisis that we're in, and understand what the root causes are, and they realize that we're living in these engineered boxes that have emf frequencies like blasting us at all times uh we're we're using chemicals within particle board and glues and paints uh and in furniture that is really suppressing our immune system we're not doing ourselves any favor by eating even this like new conventional organic uh produce that's coming out at at the grocery stores like we are in such a subdued state because of how we're creating our environments to that. There's this architect out of Southern Oregon, uh, a a couple named Paula and Robert Baker Lepore. And they have been building these things called eager designing eco nest homes. And they're, they have this marketing that I think is brilliant because it really hits on, on just like the short, bites that our, our brains are now accustomed to, which is have the best night's sleep of your life. And their whole homes are naturally built and you power them off at the end of the day. And so there's no EMFs flowing. And I just think what an incredible opportunity to live in a a structure like that and a home like that. Um I would love to see that become more mainstream. I'm I'm not really sure you know, we work kind of in rural and urban environments and, um, I would really pass it over to you and to other natural building builders that are like, how could you scale this? Um, I think there's, there's a lot of promise within using deep forest stewardship practices to create things like cross laminated timbers, um, really getting away from cement and everything that that comes with energy intensive building materials uh, and construction methods. It's also embracing things like Christopher Alexander's a pattern language that like, why are we creating these huge skyscraper buildings that don't promote a sense of community that are causing just kind of this experience of um, you're unoriented because you're so high up. Like the Dutch really seized onto this concept a long time ago to realize that why are we building or prioritizing high, high story, very dense living, whenever we can still promote dense living, but with low story, at most four story buildings in our urban environments, um, because it creates a sense of community and it's just a better way to, to build. Um, That's really antithetical to, how urban environments are getting treated right now. Um, I mean, you look at at the rise of, of what's going on in Asia and these like mega cities out of China and you're like, it, it's at a scale that is no longer human. And we can even have dense populations with tens of million, millions of people. Um, but how do we always embrace holism and recognizing those patterns that Christopher Alexander talks about as we go to to create the home and the community and and all that that's there. So I know it's not it's not the best answer, but it 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 goes back into we have to be intentional and we have to be mindful of of what we're doing. And and this is the hard part of working within the real estate industry is that whenever you go through the last really from 20 12 to 2023 people are just grateful to be in a home that they're able to get into a place that they hopefully can afford um, much less now they're like well how do, how do i even afford to do the things that i want to be doing um so i i think that it's we continuously work on the culture and we we don't have prescriptive models and it's not just about sustainability and it's not just about adding solar panels to a building. Um, you know, we see the consequences of that whenever now the carbon markets are doing some pretty nefarious things. Um, I am quite skeptical to think like, even if you just look very narrowly at the, climate crisis from a carbon perspective are we really going to be able to solve that if we don't also talk about the social aspect and the environmental aspect and the equity aspect like there is a poly crisis that's going on and solar panels are not the answer or just the answer
0: (laughs) yeah absolutely i mean as soon as you realize that all of these things are connected to reduce them to a single metric or thing to optimize for basically loses the forest for the trees and and like uh, yeah i mean this conversation is just blowing my mind into so many lines of thinking and inspiration that i had years ago that I haven't forgotten and are starting to come up as I look at the house and the farm that I'm currently renovating. For um, you know, having previously built my own home with my colleagues in Guatemala and the farm that we had there, and getting to somewhat start with a blank slate, access to a lot of natural materials, and the considerations that were made when trying to provide healthy, adequate housing given our resources, the need for three people to live close together and fulfill our needs, to now where I'm coming into a building that has an extremely long history. We actually don't know how old the building is, but it was built by Romans, at least the core of it. So it's it's at least over a thousand years old and has been renovated multiple times. It has served many different functions. It used to be a mill, then it was, I think they they built like smoking pipes for a while, I, I heard rumors of. And most recently, it was a hostel and a restaurant and the lives and the stories that are contained in that, as well as the need to update and change things for the context both my partner and I are living in, as well as the context of the modern world that we operate in, while somehow carrying on the stories that brought us to this point and evaluating the different resources we have access to. Like, I would like to renovate this as much as possible with natural materials. What is there around me that can also serve the purpose of the time and place that we're living in? And it gives way to a longer conversation of what does housing or accommodation serve? Is it really just to keep us safe and a good place to sleep and do some basic functions? Or should we start to have conversations with our doctors when we're not feeling well about what our environment that we're currently living in is doing to our health? You know, are there VOCs flying around, the radiation that you mentioned? Uh, is it disconnecting us from the social interaction that's key to an emotional and, and spiritual health that affects our physical health as well? As much as we're starting to bring farmers into this conversation with the doctor, I think our builders have a responsibility to answer some questions too. And well, anyway, I just kind of, some of the things that what you were saying provoked for me, I guess, what I would like to understand is this other idea of starting to turn private land-based wealth that is traditional in real estate into community wealth and what that means for you in the process that you are exploring to make that happen.
1: Yeah, I, I personally love um, the community land trust model. I've really, out, out of a desperate community need within our own community to for affordable housing uh, have really gone down that path to understanding what that looks like. And for me, I always ha- held community land trust as this two-legged stool that we kicked the third leg of the stool out. And it's just really an unfortunate consequence that you know, we're putting these these people into homes that and giving them home ownership opportunities, but they're not able to capture the market appreciation because I was coming from this very conventional approach that, you know, you have a mortgage, you buy down or you pay down the mortgage. So you're, you're benefiting that way. And the market is appreciating because there's inflation that always happens and there's speculation, Um, so whenever you go to sell 10 years, 20 years, 30 years later, like you have a really nice, um, cushion or nest egg that you're able to tap into the detriment of that, especially in a community like mine, uh, which is small, it's more agrarian, uh, there's high tourism. There's not a lot of available housing is that our median house price is $632,000 and our median income is substantially less than that. So how that shows up is that at first you start to notice that the restaurants aren't open on a regular basis, or maybe they're closing down at 6 p.m. because they don't have the capacity to seat other people. And then you start to realize that like, oh, that first grade teacher position that's open at the school, they can't fill it because the teacher can't find housing. Um, and then you start to see that the police chief has to move out of the community or the tool rental business. Uh, they're permanently permanently closing because they they can't find workers to live in the area. So this is just these are all real examples to our local community on this island. And and the island for me is also really wild. It's not an urban environment where people are getting displaced on a regular basis, but they just end up going a little bit further out. Uh, They still have the same circle of friends. They can probably keep their same job. and, And that happens. But for me, the real sticking point was once you leave an island community, that person, that job, that business is gone. And so for us, there was a real push to how do we create more community ownership and to get the community involved and to say, We're going to produce housing that uh, is not only going to provide stability and dignity for people where that they can have a mortgage, get the the mortgage interest deduction uh, on their taxes, uh, but they can also benefit from a forced savings plan where they are paying off a portion of their principal every month. Uh, they, instead of having to pay, you know, the $2,500 a month on, on a market rate mortgage, they're paying below a thousand dollars and like really having comfortable savings there. Um, and, and it's creating the conditions in the community in which we can protect the really vulnerable people that never would have been able to afford market rate housing, be it rental or home ownership, regardless And so the more that you can really tap into community organizations that are engendered by a sense of community membership that votes on the board, that fundraises, that is able to take advantage of public and private partnerships uh, so that you can go out and either build housing or adapt existing housing and create permanent affordability out of that, that is a whole new ballgame. And for me, it's no longer... What is the solution to this problem? How are we going to deal with this? Because it's showing up in our urban areas as houselessness. It's showing up as people being really uh, financially burdened because they're way above thirty percent of their net income going towards towards housing. Uh, we now have the solution, and we just need more finance or funding for it from state and federal governments. We now. Like have this huge generation of baby boomers that have so many assets that they've got to figure out where that's going. Can they donate land or homes to the next generation that really needs it? That um, the community either needs to step up and be able to to buy it, or they need to figure out what's what's the legacy that they want to live or leave with this property. Uh, underneath that, there's cooperatives and limited equity cooperatives that I think is just starting to pick up where people are saying, you know, we want to live in a more community setting, but instead of, you know, there's the developer and then there's uh, the condo owners, like we're going to create our own ownership structure and we're going to own percentages of, of that company. uh, And we're going to create more of a socratic decision making process and and hopefully there are some of these communities that are starting to put uh, limited equity cooperatives together um so this is this is that arc towards how do you create more community housing how do you get away from the privatization of land uh we're going to be using that those models to and to steer towards this um And I think we're going to have to because nowhere is immune to affordability issues from farming to, to seeing young aspiring farmers that are saying, you know, I, I want to be place-based. I want to have my own farm, but they're barred from getting, getting land. And this is where I, I hold regenerative agriculture, uh, the in, the new investment models at bay a bit too, because they're raising tens of millions, if not billions of dollars that are in the name of regenerative agriculture. But their models are still baked upon a corporate overlord is owning the land and they in order to get the returns of their institutional investors or their sovereign wealth funds, they need that land to appreciate and then they need to liquidate after about 10 years and sell it to somebody that is going to pay even more money for that property. And during that 10 year ownership, they need consistent cash flows that are coming on the backs of the people that are farming it. I mean, they might be doing regenerative agriculture and rotating animals around and um, using a more perennial based system, but is that regenerative enough i don't know i mean that that doesn't solve this deep disparity
0: yeah (laughs) yeah i mean i have often talked about how the social and human community aspect of regenerative farming as it is currently hyped seems to be the weakest link in that chain it's something that we're really looking at over here in europe and the companies that i work with um to make sure that it is not either a forgotten or exploited resource that is not, uh, I guess, measured when we're talking about regeneration. Great, your uh, microbial communities in your soil are doing great. You're starting to move to a profitable perennial-based system and the people involved in it are not making a living wage and are working far beyond their capacity. It's still on the backs of, of some form of life, right? And as soon as you put the blinders on to one of these aspects, you lose the ability to call this regenerative, at least in a holistic sense. Um, But to go back to how these new configurations of communities could look, I mean, it really brings up some of what I remember from my conversations with Mark Lakeman, Uh, if communitexture, perhaps you've come across his work uh, from Portland, Oregon, yeah, uh, city repair and such. Are these the types of projects that you're actively working in as well? These retrofits of neighborhoods in a way that facilitates collaboration, communal living, sharing of resources, tasks and such, which is ever more relevant to the way that the economy is shifting. I mean, you mentioned how it's just not realistic now for, let's say, a single parent household to afford that under 30% margin that should be healthy in a home economic sense to be spending on your housing and the the limitations and the way it's pushing people to the margins who are playing the game well, but quite literally can't keep up with the way that this speculative market is, is pushing prices. And I'm sure you've observed this in your own travels as well, that in communities with less resources, you automatically see more community cohesion out of a necessity. And almost all of us come from this lineage, whether it's four or five generations back or uh, just one generation removed, there does seem to be not only a necessity, but also even a yearning from people who have the resources not not to live this way to recover the connection and the, the collaborative living model that has somewhat been abandoned through this idea of, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, do everything all on your own. And, you know, um, do you see this as a future for a lot of renovations for existing communities? Or is this going to flourish in new developments? I think that's,
1: it's going to happen across the board, because it's going to have to. I think that the culture is shifting, and people are demanding it. I think that The financing is the laggard that, you know, I straddle this world between capital and ecology and at times they're, they're in opposition to each other, but if, if the people are saying, this is what we want and you have ecological collapse happening and, um, no matter what, there's going to be new development that's taking place. No matter what, there's going to be retrofitting and figuring out what's going on with with a gridded urban system. No matter what land is transferring in rural areas, Um, and we are having the conversations of how do you manage resources? How do you steward land? How do you work within the confines of an urban area? How do you transform an energy grid or a nutrient cycle? Um, I love the the thought exercises of of using a permaculture to a, a system like New York City and and seeing it's a flow of energy, water, and nutrients and understanding how can we how can we start to to create these adaptations of our environments that are going to be more life-giving. So it doesn't really it can't be siloed in any one one area. And as long as the capital starts to recognize that and to support it, and i'm not I'm certainly not saying it's there right now, but it's starting to get there. It's starting there's there's things that are cropping up that are very uh, interesting to watch. And I think that's we're at the beginning. And shows like this are are ones that help seed this idea of of what could be. Um, because that that's what we're having to hold right now is well, let's let's figure out the kind of environment and the kind of planet and the kind of community that we want to be in and and understand that we have the obligation and the real necessity to to make change because we can't continue like this any longer. It's outdated models. It's erroneous thinking that that the experiment worked kind of well for a couple generations, maybe not even that. Um, but we're going to have to step up to the plate.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, since you've also been in this podcasting space for a while and had some amazing conversations Um What have been some of the new ideas or championed processes that you have been privy to through your interviews that have inspired you recently and that have got you looking forward to how they develop and and how it affects your work?
1: No, that's a rich question. And it's so deep. I really appreciate every guest that has come on the Regenerative Real Estate Podcast. It has been such a learning journey for me. Uh, I love to get into that backstory and understand the becoming of somebody and, and like really the twists and turns that people are making to, to follow their intuition and to, to really marry head and heart together. I think it's, it's that balancing act. It's not just like, how do, how do I do this? And I've got to ignore all the other realities around me, um, they're they're taking these blended approaches towards creating habitat that is amazing, and it's pretty eye opening. I just had a, a guest on uh, named Hillary Maddox who created a, a site called Black Girl Country Living, um, and that that's an amazing insight into the look of a young black woman and her family that are homesteading, and um, that they just have that community has never really felt safe in rural areas that like to take advantage of the hiking trails of the Pacific Northwest. They didn't feel safe doing that. Like connecting with, with a farm and, and being able to put their hands on the soil that is not in her culture or in that community's culture. And so seeing people that are inviting and rolling others into that work is really inspiring um i love you know the people like mark lakeman that it's like a provocateur of what sustainability is and architecture and zoning like mark mark will take you on this like blast of what a gridded urban design the the tenement state dating back to like the roman armies and transporting goods and soldiers and helping them orient much faster rather than like the design patterns of villages um, to, you know, green builders that, that are really on that bleeding edge and in helping to define what healthy resilient high performance buildings look like uh, to where I just, people come to me and they're like, you have such a diversity of guests on from the agriculture to the, the built environment to the financing piece. And I'm like, yeah, because they're all related. Yeah. And, um, if you get to be in the center of that conversation and start to harmonize some of these disparate concepts, it, it's a whole new ball game for me.
0: And that's something I really love about the program you've put together is that you've looked at an aspect of the built world and an industry through a holistic lens that could just as easily continue to propagate the narratives of separation and destruction that have gotten us to this point. But by looking at it through the broad interconnected aspects that give it the potential to be something different, you do get this breadth of of insights and perspectives and ideas that are absolutely intertwined with what this could be. And it keeps it interesting all the time. I really want to commend you for that. And can you tell our listeners what, well, where they can find the rest of your work, how they can get in touch, and maybe some resources you would recommend?
1: Yeah, our company is called Latitude Regenerative Real Estate. We we try our best to to stay up on social media and and give um, inspiration and education through our offerings from monthly what we call ecosystem calls, where you can come learn about different topics. Uh, the podcast is pretty easy to look up with the Regenerative Real Estate podcast, um, and and if you're at that point where maybe you're looking for a new a new home or you're trying to put together a community uh, or a, a passion project, and you're really feeling like you need some professional help, uh, that's what Latitude is there for. We we took a really interesting turn with. Uh, this decentralized work nature with covid where we started to get other real estate professionals that are saying you know i really want to align my skill set and my brand and how i show up in my profession in my community uh, across north america uh, i think we're in 13 or 14 different states right now and so not everywhere uh, but certainly in in some incredible areas and and, and with just people that are so passionate about this. They are on a lifelong learning journey. Uh, We recently uh, had a team member join in in Portugal that has like such an incredible uh, land-based experience with with large permaculture projects uh, on different continents. And so I'm really pleased about that. Um, We got a group out of Australia that is like really gung-ho about getting involved. So it, this is kind of a, a two-part shout out. Like if, if you're on that uh, customer side, like if you are are looking to do anything with land, home, or habitats, uh, certainly check Latitude out. But also if you find yourself to be working within the broader real estate industry from design to transactions to, to whatever, um, we want to know those other organizations that are value aligned because we have clients that need your expertise and we need to know who you are. We want to be working with you and we want to be putting those projects together. Even And some of the best projects that I've ever had the opportunity of working on is, are those ecosystem partners that like. wouldn't it be great if, you know, I've had that, or I've had this idea for a long time, but I haven't quite figured out how to put it together. It's like, yes, let's, let's play. <laughs> let's play so yeah reach out to us
0: i agree it's so rewarding when someone is humble enough in the beginning of their journey that they come to you before they've already started and you have the opportunity to co-create a concept Uh, oftentimes i get people coming in later on and you know there's a lot of repair work that needs to be done before they can move forward but some get, get the bright idea like, hmm, it would be good to get someone's perspective who've done this a whole bunch and have thought through this and has a large network. I mean, whether or not I'm the person that can be of assistance or I can connect you with someone else, I, I'm sure that's how you work as well. Um, it, it's it's so much fun just to to co-create these with, with people who are, who are willing to listen and have a clear vision of what they want to accomplish. I think, well, hopefully we'll get some listeners reaching out to you soon. And I would love to hear about how some of these projects continue to develop, especially as you start to work more in the Iberian Peninsula. Maybe we'll even have a chance to coordinate and collaborate in the future.
1: Yeah, that'd be excellent. Oliver, thank you so much for putting on this podcast. It's a, a pleasure to get to come on it.
0: It's a pleasure of mine. Let's uh, hopefully catch up again soon. I would love to continue to go deeper into this very broad topic with you. And I'll also keep up on your upcoming episodes as well. So thank you. Thanks, Oliver. Thanks once again to Neil. You can find all the links to the resources that he mentioned on the show notes for this episode on the Regenerative Skills website. I really encourage you to also check out the Regenerative Real Estate Podcast if you're interested in learning more about the topics that we just touched on in this session. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like minded listeners, exchange ideas, stories tips and resources as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show our instagram account at regen underscore skills is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on both for clients and collaborators as well as on our own properties i'll also be announcing the certification courses workshops and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year if you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project. You can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet. And we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.